0: product managers give hundred percent of themselves to their customers but who's there for the pm the product management center at the university of washington it's a global hub for knowledge community and impact i'm jeff shulman founding director of the product management center and your host on this show how to succeed in product management Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. We're on a mission to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And part of that is being here every single week or every week that we can, bringing you some of the best and brightest minds in product management and a, a forum to just kick around ideas and share some of the best practices. Today, our focus is on using predictive analytics in product prioritization decisions. And so we're going to dive into the different types of predictive analytics that our panelists use, get the data for these predictive analytics, and then how do they bring them in to blend them in with other data points and intuition to make prioritization decisions. And we have every single time, or almost every single time, we have Red as our co-host here, and Red is going to get you all involved in today's conversation Red, you just showed up and already I'm putting you on the spot, but tell us a little bit about why you give all your time, not all your time, but as much time as you do to the Product Management Center. We couldn't do this without you. Really appreciate your energy. So tell us why you're involved in the Product Management Center and how people can get involved in today's conversation about using predictive analytics and prioritization decisions.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'll start with the second part for those who are here today. This is a podcast after all, but for those who are in the live audience, Around the half hour mark, we bring you up on stage or you can direct message me and we will ask questions on your behalf. So if you're somebody who has something that you heard, don't raise your hand too early. At about a half an hour mark, we'll bring you up and you'll be able to help drive the conversation. Now, that little gesture as far as today's podcast ends when the podcast closes up and then we start again next Tuesday. But when Jeff and I were talking a few years ago about, well, what about product managers the rest of the year, not just on Tuesdays? And there wasn't even a podcast back then. The idea of how do we help product managers get through that front door or people who were thinking about a career and couldn't get into the engineering department, or maybe were considering a career that took advantage of a lot of their skills, but they didn't know how to apply it. And boom, project manager or product manager came up. So that's where the institution really began. The the investment from the university and the sweat equity from Jeff and the whole crew there kicking into gear a program that is specifically focused on how to help product managers succeed not just here in the United States, but we found global audiences interested in finding ways to become what a product manager has evolved in today's society. So, underserved. I've been spending the community, I don't know, Jeff, keep me honest, here. almost uh, 15 years with product managers. And if I could have done one thing to pay them back for all the incredible things they've done for my career, it's to pay it forward back to them and to the future of product. So that's why I'm here. I'm super pumped. And if you're somebody who likes stage time and sense of humor, then be my guest in 30 minutes from now. Back to you, Jeff.
0: All right. Thanks, Red, for that enthusiasm. And I was hoping you were going to sing Be Our Guest from the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack to really get I thought
1: about about it. I I thought you were going to jump in here. Do I get to be the Cando Oliverum or do you, or which one's the teapot?
0: That's oh, that's that's a yeah. really good question. I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> Chip, we'll get to you'll get to be our guest in a moment. And we're here to help not just people who are breaking into product management, but people who are already there and want to get to the next level as well. And Varun is going to help you and help us get everybody there. So Varun, really quickly, tell us a little bit about your journey in product management. And then you proposed this topic, or at least you wrote a blog post about it that inspired this topic. So tell us a little bit about your journey in product and why this topic is important.
2: Awesome. Sounds good. And uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, Definitely. So I started my journey initially in product management with a little non-traditional background. I started in consulting, so I was at Deloitte. Uh, And at Deloitte, I started leading initiatives for managing end-to-end product life cycles for improving digitization across the U.S. public sector. And the whole idea or emphasis was to Launch products which helped improve operational costs, increase operational savings, and deliver next chain experiences. So that's where I started in my product management journey. And throughout like my tenure at Deloitte, about five and a half years, I was involved in mission critical deliverables, which required predictive thinking and you know planning way ahead to help improve certain aspects from a public sector digitization pipeline. After that, I kind of got my MBA and I started working at Cisco as a senior product manager. And the journey right now is I'm leading the product portfolio for next-gen AI, reporting and analytics initiatives, specifically targeting B2B customers, uh, helping them improve their infrastructure, utilization, resources, business operations, etc. And along the way, I've managed to launch certain products which have leveraged extensive predictive analytics to uh, become more competitive in the market, improve revenue aspects, as well as ensuring the right amount of customer adoption and engagement. So, so definitely a topic which is you know something I use on a day-to-day basis and which I'm quite fond of, uh, to put in that perspective.
0: All right. Thank you, Varun. And Ash, tell us a little bit about your journey in product and why you wanted to join this conversation, why you think it's important for us to discuss using predictive analytics and prioritization decisions
3: yeah that's a good, great question i hope you can still hear me but um i started my product journey at microsoft a long time back my first role was a program manager so managing the schedule and delivery and then it expanded from there just because we did not have enough capacity to do product planning so learning the business aspects of it so one thing leading to another i found myself leading product for a portfolio and then I moved to Isilon, which was acquired by EMC, which got acquired by Dell. And in that growth, I went from one product to a portfolio of emerging technology products made up of nine products in all. So and all sub $100 million products uh, was something that I kind of did. Now, when I saw this topic come up, uh, when I was at Dell, I found a lot of data being used and it was necessary to make good product decisions. And I wish there were a lot of analytic, predictive analytic solutions back then, which are now available. So I thought it would be a good idea to just jump in and share my experience of doing some predictions before as many tools being available. So currently, I lead product for mobility insurance product at AIS. AIS is a not-for-profit insurance advisory services organization. We serve about eight hundred insurance carriers. We help them write insurance product or insurance uh, policies towards their end customers, but we give them the blueprint to do that. And insurance being a very data-intensive industry, a lot of learnings that we had from the storage piece of Isilon is being adopted and 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 reused here. So I thought it would be a great idea for me to bring and share my learnings and experiences, and even learn a few tools and techniques that others might have that we could go and improve what we do. So thank you for having me and look forward to a fantastic discussion here.
0: All right. Thank you. So now in the next 50 minutes, we're going to try to answer as many questions of yours in the audience that you have as we can, and we're going to try to give you some tangible takeaways. So I'm going to try, Varun, if I could put you on the spot, the fastest to value that you could add to somebody who's listening. What is one predictive model or approach for predictive analytics that you have found most helpful and valuable as you've been making prioritization decisions? Is there a model you could share or an approach or one single lesson that you could somebody could take away tomorrow and ap- apply? Absolutely,
2: yeah. I think the first or the ground zero step initially starts with the right data collection and preparation. To gather the data, ensure that the relevant data points are available for making a very holistic, customer-oriented product decision And just real quickly, the data can be gathered from historical sales data sets, there's customer feedback, market trends, competitive analysis. All of this can definitely be leveraged to create a very clean and structured data set for analysis. And some of the techniques are like probably the most popular technique or the most used technique from my standpoint is something like decision tree, where the available data is mapped to significant attributes that are needed by customers. And kind of classifying them into these user journey or relationship diagrams for what the customers want and how that will impact a particular KPI or key metric or which customer request or feature would have the greatest influence on the target strategy. And then leveraging that to kind of create a strategy which basically ensures that the right feature is given importance, it is developed and is put through the product lifecycle and is given to the customer. So that's that's one of the techniques. And the other technique which I found particularly useful is something like cluster analysis from a predictive standpoint. So where uh, the customer group is segmented based on their similar data points and then common features or trends are identified and that is used to predict their journey into what they might find useful, then building a feature or prioritizing a feature accordingly. Uh, and of course, this definitely needs a lot of data analysis and there's complexity involved, but mapping it to specific business goals has definitely helped me ensure that the right feature is delivered and we also, at the end of the day, meet the necessary metric from an organizational standpoint.
0: All right, thank you, Varun. And then Ash, I'm going to put you on the spot to either, you get to choose, ask a question of Varun if there's anything that you wanted to further understand so there's more actionable specifics or chime in and share whether you've used what uh, Varun has described in your own work.
3: Yeah, so I would agree with what Varun said. So it all starts with the data collection and knowing what is useful and available. And I would add one more caveat coming from a B2B Perspective. I've pretty much been on the, the further up end of the, the value spectrum, if you will, and just making sure that we have either a direct data that we could use for decision making or a proxy, a relevant proxy, or knowing the aspect of a proxy that we can take in to make some estimates that are slightly better off than trying to go blind, if you will. So that will be my contribution. But again, just like Varun said, cluster analysis, decision trees, those are pretty much the typical uh, tools of the trade to build on top of the decision that you need to kind of like make. Uh, In my experience or in the way we have operated in both Dell as well as at EAIS, we do decisions for two distinct phases of product development cycle. One is product prioritization to... Pick up the products to build. Uh, those are strategic in nature and the others are tactical quarterly or sprint based decisions on prioritizing features to be built. So the mechanics and the process are the same. The data points and the way we went about are, are different. So that would kind of like be my, I think contribution towards what Varun just described as like one thing or a few set of things to build on top of using predictive analytics.
0: Does that help? Definitely. And so, Varun, any resources that helped you get up to speed on how to utilize those methods appropriately?
2: Uh, Yes, absolutely. I think one of the most important things that anybody can do to find these methods useful is setting up a validation process. And this kind of also aligns with the whole product market fit exercise that PMs are expected to do. To see if the product is valuable, will kind of meet the market needs, etc. And what was useful to me was just doing a lot of market research initially to see if these methods are used in practice, if there were any case studies or if there were any available, or if there was any available statistical data where these methods were useful and uh, if they've made an impact. And I found very useful examples, mostly in the public sector where predictive analytics was used specifically to deliver right quality healthcare services. And a lot of the big organizations along with like their B2B components were also using predictive analytics to improve customer experiences. And I think the second thing which was useful was doing a lot of competitive analysis. I think when I was at Deloitte, it involved a lot of extensive exercises on seeing what were the industry trends, what were the market leaders and kind of leveraging those magic quadrants from Gartner, as well as the other analysis that is available publicly and building on top of that to better refine my approach for uh, using predictive analytics in
0: practice. So my next question then is to get into the weeds, any particular software that you found really valuable? And I want to make sure everybody knows that our two guests are speaking just for themselves and not on behalf of their company and not on behalf of any company that they use software for. So I want to make that clear. But any particular software that you found most helpful for either analyzing the data or visualizing the data or somehow plugging in those analytics into your prioritization decisions. Ash, I'll let you go first if you have anything that comes to mind, and then Varun, I'd love to hear from you too.
3: This may be just me, but I, I find this very very common practice with a lot of experienced or older product managers. The, the number one tool that we all default to is Excel, and we build on top of it. It's quite powerful to start with, and especially if you're thinking about market sizing, product prioritization, portfolio design kind of decision-making, you don't have too many tools or too many data points, and you, you will be working with small sets to try to figure out if there's something there that you can use, some lines you can draw that you can expand upon and track on an ongoing basis. So that's where I typically start, and I've seen most of my peers start there as well, and as the maturity of the data and the, the information and knowledge increases, we tend to move them to tools such as Power BI or Tableau for that matter and automate some process of data collection and update so that it becomes a more rigorous process moving forward and we have something to build on top of. So starting from the foundations is always, for, for me, has been Excel and then moving on to a lot more, like a dashboard kind of a thing with automation to bring in information. Now, in the insurance industry, the there are very, I would say, weird sources of information. There are a whole lot of data sets that come in PDF formats. They're designed to be hard to pull out and and incorporate in. So we usually get hire a whole bunch of interns whose job it is to take those tables who, which look nice and put them into formats that are usable by our dashboards on an ongoing basis. When we were at Dell, there was the, the standard data collection. they were data services that were available from Gartner, IDC, Forrester that we could plug in. They could either come in as CSV files or like through direct portals, which we, we could import and repurpose and use. So there's a whole lot of variety uh, but I, I know for folks who use Python to run, run simulations and try to figure out what can happen. Uh, I don't do that, but there are others who kind of like feel comfortable doing that. So that's what I would say.
0: Ash, you are not the first person to say you could start with Excel. I think somebody once said that anything in the world you'd ever do, you could do in Excel, at least to start. <laughs> so Varun, anything to add to what Ash was saying in terms of software or tools that you use?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely Excel, right? I mean, what's the point otherwise? <laughs> but no, Excel, Excel is always a good starting point. I think one of the most fundamental or foundational tools that anybody can use to collect and analyze data. But in my experience, I've extensively worked with business intelligence engineers and also have personally used Python for a lot of data analysis and predictive modeling particularly because their inbuilt libraries are super useful for building and training predictive models and like ash was saying and alluding to what he was referring to earlier right like as the data sets increase as it becomes more complex you definitely complex you definitely need those powerful capabilities to manipulate data and tableau of course when it comes to you know how can you integrate all of the analysis into a proper visualization while also exploring and like kind of playing around with the data model. So Python and Tableau have been super useful uh, and a good use case uh, from my experience based on previous product work that I've done is I use predictive analytics for helping identify, let's say, for example, patients who were at a higher risk of being admitted to hospitals. And this was based on their the analysis of their previous visits, diagnosis, and predictive models that were created in Python to identify like which people would need more care or which people would be at higher risk and how to help them avoid any unnecessary healthcare costs or unnecessary readmissions. So so I found Python, Excel, and Tableau, of course, to be useful. And uh, like I said, one of the use cases was like identifying correctly which patients were at higher risk of readmissions in hospitals. So that's how it was used in practice.
0: Thank you so much, Varun and Ash. So I have uh, one more question for both of you, and then I hope maybe you have one question for each other, and then we'll get to audience questions of you. But so there are two approaches that on paper from academia that are uh, valuable. One is a conjoint analysis where you basically force people to make choices between a lot of different combinations. And then from that, you're able to see what is often called the part worth. So how much would they pay for a specific feature or benefit? And then the other approach is the Kano model, where you could see you know, what would surprise and delight customers, what's expected, and what they don't necessarily need. And so I'm curious if either of you have used them at some point in your career, or if you've used other approaches to be able to find out You know, how much would somebody pay for a feature or how much would a feature or benefit surprise and delight them or is it expected as a point of parity? So yeah, conjoint and Kano model, any substitutes for those purposes? Whoever wants to go first.
3: I have unfortunately not worked with uh, either of those. Uh, Like I said, it was most of the products that I have worked on have been uh, like platform kind of behind the scenes working. So there is a lot more direct, feedback or a need that was based that that, that we could actually identify. So maybe I could give an example of like storage, right? We always knew the data was growing and there would be increasing need for to store all of the data under an enterprise setting. So our discussions would be on, well, what would be the parameters to, um, to structure a portfolio? And we came up with density, efficiency and performance as three metrics on which our portfolio will be based. And then trying to segment markets and just doing cluster analysis to try to figure out where the need for the product would be was, was where we started. And then our second point was, how do we make it economically feasible to store the information that needed to be stored? So under we came at it from a different perspective rather than testing it out with the market. We we started with the need. It has to be done. What would be the best way to go about And then the next part was, how do we get the maximum amount of share, a market share, and meet operating income targets? So we got to the data without asking this question and doing those analysis. And we kind of pretty much relied on the finance team to, to help on it. So as a product manager, the decisions were more about which things to consider and what approaches to to find rather than on the metrics and the technicalities of running the analytics. Maybe Varun can lead with what else he he's, his experience brings here.
2: Yeah, thanks, Ash. And I think I can give a practical example. And this happened during COVID-19, especially with the whole emphasis on virtual care. And I was in charge of building a telehealth product. And of course, with the time constraints and PMs will always be expected to do everything. You cannot technically do everything. There's always a limit from a technical or functional standpoint. And I particularly use conjoint analysis from a market research perspective. And at that time, it was necessary to understand what different attributes of a product or the telehealth service that customers perceive is more important. And just to quickly break it down, I use conjoint analysis to segment the customer base, basically Based on their ages, whether they are below the age of 50, above the age of 50, are they elderly and do they need immediate care, etc. And this customer segmentation was then used to identify attributes relevant to the product and relevant to them from a price, design, functionality, or a performance standpoint. And the third step was basically sending questionnaires, conducting interviews and using those responses to build preference mappings. So these preference mappings were visual aids that customers were given and which they responded to provide inferences on what attributes they would find useful. And then we did something like a simulation or a use scenario-based simulation where we kind of went through these different combinations, different responses, and I was able to create a scoring mechanism to predictively assess which feature would be the most beneficial given the time constraints as well as limitations on pushing it to the market, especially in a very volatile situation. And then conjoint analysis was used to uncover these trade offs between different attributes and giving customers what they want versus what they actually need. So that's one of the practical examples where I've used conjoint analysis. I haven't really used the Kano model because I, find, I found the conjoint analysis to be useful. And usually if decision trees, cluster analysis, if they come into the picture, and if you use a prioritization framework, let's say like the Wischief scoring methodology, then ideally the Kano model can supplement it, supplement it or may not even be necessary in certain aspects. But that's that's been my experience.
0: All right. One more follow-up question. What data are you using in these cluster analyses? without giving away confidential secrets. So make sure you don't give away confidential secrets. But what what data are you grabbing that that could go into a cluster analysis that's helping you in prioritization decisions? Either one of you.
3: Uh, I can see this because there is a very simple mechanism and I think it is well-known in the, in the technology space. Uh, IDC has an offering called a tracker. So they have server tracker, storage tracker, desktop tracker, mobile tracker, a bunch of other trackers where they report on what is the storage under different conditions and what is the market and how it is evolving on a quarterly basis. So that was like the number one piece of information that we use because it's just consistent. They have a standardized methodology of predicting that, uh, like coming up with those numbers, and we just relied on it. I think most of the industry relies on it. In addition to that, we had our own proprietary data sets that we would that was automated and through some internal system that gave us view into what we considered as holes in in the publicly available data sets. Go ahead, Varun.
2: Yeah, thanks Ash. So yeah, without giving away too much information, maybe I'll try to keep it a little generic, but cluster analysis specifically from my side has been used from a very persona focused perspective. So segmenting customers based on their personas then identifying the right or extremely critical or high-level use cases applicable to these personas, and then prioritizing features based on their preferences. And that has allowed me to you know, gather super valuable insights from a predictive perspective, which has helped make very informed decisions. And the clustering, again, is gather additional feedback through usability studies or additional UX research or any other interview-based practices. And that clustering then allows for predicting what each persona would need as the product is evolved or when you're launching a zero-to-one product from scratch. So, So that's where I've used cluster analysis and where it has been very beneficial.
0: All right. Thank you. Now, audience, we'd love to hear from you if you have a question either about specific predictive analytics or if you have questions about, okay, you've got the predictive analytics, but how do you bring them into the prioritization decisions. If you have any questions about that or comments, we'd love to hear how you do it as well. Red is going to manage this part of the show. And Red, are you up for it?
1: Ooh. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> <Careful>. <laughs> oh, man. Do you like the they're dramatic pause listeners. too? I, I was like waiting for it. There are people right now who are very disappointed in you, Jeff. Like they're sitting in their chairs at home or working out, whatever they do. <sighs> I'm proud of you, yet disappointed. At the same time. Okay, so here's how it works. And as you're thinking about questions to get up on stage, there are two ways to do it. One is raise your hand. Uh, This is LinkedIn Live, which means you have the ability to actually raise your, well, your technological AI component of a hand, some kind of version of a user interface that looks like a hand, and we will call you up on stage. And for those who are uh, more shy, you know, again, the aren't interested in the fame and glory of rocking and rolling on stage with our amazing guests here today, DM me, that's direct message me right within the LinkedIn platform, and we'll ask questions anonymously on your behalf. That way, you can be you without the world knowing who asked. So with that in mind, Jeff, I don't think the audience is ready, I can never do it as good as you, for uh, <laughs> or questions, so I'll spend it back to you, and we'll see what comes in through the grapevine.
0: All right. Message Red, message me, uh, raise your hand and come on up. I'm going to give a quick shout out. I see quite a few of the fellows from the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator program that we have, which is empowering new product managers among people who are committed to inclusion. So grateful to see you. I don't want to give your name out there for in case, because it is recorded, but I see you and I'm grateful you're here. And so speaking of grateful you're here, Varun and Ash, you've both volunteered in the IPMA. So appreciate that and want to give you a chance to ask each other any questions that you have. So anything that, I'm going to take Red's role here and say anything that you think might be controversial. So do you want to stake a controversial opinion and see if either of the other one agrees or disagrees?
3: <laughs> that is a hard one to, to take, Jeff, but I could just go to Varun and just like ask this question of like, what would be your suggestion or like from your experience, what would you recommend not taking into account even though it feels like a very strong signal on, on a product decision?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Well, I think I think that's that's super useful. And on being super honest, I failed in multiple instances to understand or separate the right metrics from the metrics that are not needed. So one thing to specifically answer your question is avoid using vanity metrics. Right? Avoid using metrics which will not be useful to either your organization, the team, or to the customers. And, you know, when I was a new product manager, I was super excited to do things very quickly. And I was just coming up with metrics based on some predictions that were provided by the models. And it actually did not meet the right uh, objective and key result or OKR in short. And uh, that definitely did not help optimize any of the product features or capabilities and we had to roll it back. So one thing I would definitely point out is when you're creating these predictive models or when you're using predictive analytics for any prioritization decision, it is imperative that you map it to the right KPI and to the right OKR and use iterative and continuous feedback to improve it. Don't be complacent or just don't go all in and try to release a feature because rolling it back or, uh, customers not liking it has higher costs. So you have to be very cognizant of how you use it and uh, what you come up with from an importance perspective. Yep, that sounds like sound advice. Thank you for that. No problem. Uh, and quick question to you, Ash, since you're in the insurance industry and you know, it's very, very data heavy and data specific and a lot of insights are needed. Do you mind highlighting a use case for me and the audience just from a perspective of, how would you use predictive analytics to personalize experiences or personalize insurance offerings based on different premium tiers or pricing or something like that?
3: Yeah, so depending upon the lines of insurance business, uh, there's only so much flexibility in personalization that is available to most insurance carriers, which is why they do not offer like interesting products. It's very much cut and dry, very similar to, to each other. Uh, But I can take your uh, question in a different direction because if we have to product, so when we are building a product for the first time, and this is a very unique thing in the industry in the sense that once you build a product, sometimes they don't change for 40, 50, 60 years. AIS was taking up the building of the auto product just in 2016, and we will be done by 2032 for all the things that we have got to do. And... Building a product takes somewhere between 28 to 36 weeks, and getting it approved can take up to four years, based on the jurisdiction that we we have to get approvals from. So taking a product will not happen overnight. Uh, It takes years of planning uh, and ongoing work to make sure that we build. Now, the decision that we have to work with is which states to build, and when do we actually do it? So we've got four measures, the market size, number of carriers, that kind of like is a proxy for competition in that market, the compliance needs, and the features that are required based on legislation that is existing or coming up in the next or in the time frame that is going to happen, that the product build is going to happen. So all of these data points are available through publicly available, Freedom of Information Act websites, but they are not consumable. So somebody's got to bring that down and keep that in a way where we can actually use it. And that's what we do for prioritization. It's not just us, but most of the organization, before you say, I need to change this product for using whatever X, Y, and Z, you have to consider these external factors that you have very little control over before you go and make a decision. And there's so many pointers, like uh, if you know that some bills are coming up for discussion, it's probably it's going to be uh, going through a couple of uh, Congress sessions in that state. So you know that that will land and cause you to change the way you are building a product. So all of those things are considered. So
2: it's an interesting and different place. And one quick quick thing I would like to allude to uh, is I know we were discussing about the Kano model, but There are several prioritization frameworks that can be combined with product analytics. And uh, I particularly have found the weighted scoring shortest job or Wischif method the most useful, which takes into account value, effort, and customer demand. And like what Ash was saying, sometimes there are long product cycles, sometimes there are shorter product cycles. And these prioritization frameworks definitely help you achieve the highest predicted value. Uh, Or high scoring Uh, based on reach, impact, confidence, and effort. It's a very popular framework and can definitely help quantify impact as well as confidence levels. To make accurate predictions, deliver the right feature sets and ensure that you as a PM or you as the part of a product team achieve the necessary goals and meet the right targets and metrics and things like that.
3: I'll second that. And if nothing, at a minimum, know and use this framework At least for the interview, because they will definitely come up there.
1: All right. Not a lot of controversy between the two of you, which is expected with product. Uh, They always seem to get along, Jeff. Uh, One day, one day, we will have an all-out brawl. We actually have a question, and uh, this one's coming in for you, Varun. This is uh, from an anonymous poster. Uh, They asked the following. He he said that he used scenarios, he being you, Varun. I am highly interested to know how he chose which scenarios to use. So Varun, that's a question for you. And then we'd love to see if uh, Ash, you might want to add any flavor on top.
2: Absolutely. No, Thank you for the question. So the scenarios were used in the context of, again, personas and scenario modeling is, of course, or user journey mapping or any UML diagrams. They're very necessary when scenarios are being cr- created. And scenarios basically again align with like the prioritization framework that's taken into consideration. And I know it's a, it's it's a very convoluted answer, but it also alludes or aligns with the strategy or the product strategy that you have. And the scenarios were created based on one is which persona will lead to the maximum amount of customer adoption and engagement to help increase revenue streams. Another scenario based on the second persona was how can we better help this persona and how can we better help deliver the right or the best possible next-gen experiences so their user actions and their user workflows are more simplified. And The third persona was then used to create a scenario to better understand how much or how or to what degree should predictive analytics be more or will be more useful to deliver new feature sets and are they really working and what's the validation behind it. So a lot of scenarios were considered and the scenarios were again modeled based on the personas and the long-term product strategy of improving commercial revenue, delivering the right next-gen experiences, as well as ensuring that the predictive analytics processes are actually working. And if a scenario doesn't work, you can again come up with new scenarios, do more user research, which I always highly recommend to anybody who asks me about it, and uh, doing a lot of market research or competitive analysis. So uh, all of these factors do come into consideration when you're creating scenarios or when you're trying to do the best for your customers. And working backwards, of course, is, is one of the Greatest aspects that a PM can use to think from a customer perspective in, when it comes to creating those scenarios and integrating them as such
1: with the techniques and frameworks that you'll be using. That's a fantastic answer. And you're getting compliments from the individual who asked the question. I do, Dare I say, they weren't directing it at you, Ash, but would you like to put some sprinkles on that Sunday of knowledge?
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I have this perspective in the sense that uh, when I worked in the storage industry, we were building boxes, right? And it's not software. It's not something that you can change overnight. Uh, You have to think about the entire life cycle. So if you're planning a product to come out, let's say 18 months out, and you have to know that what components you're going to be using to start with, what will they be replaced with, for the time that you will be manufacturing and shipping them out. And if they cannot be sourced, what are your contingency strategies or what what will that need to be done? So a lot of scenarios where are usually pre-baked based on the product that are built. And you kind of like have to build on top of that and maybe take additional things into consideration. And that's one unique thing in the sense that once you define oh, we are going to be doing this and we are going to bring all of these other elements. You need to have buy-off from your suppliers to make sure that whatever you are projected meets the needs and is financially viable over a period of time. Now, storage is a very interesting case in the sense that Moore's law applies to storage very, very well. So your storage costs will halve every 18 months. And so you need to figure out exactly how best to to kind of like fit into that model, keep your product going and replace it with the next one coming in. So building that life cycle required a lot of scenario planning. Now, I don't know how much I can go in there, but there's a lot of proprietary things about different organizations about the way they build it. And that's what makes them successful because the more you are able to project out in the future, uh, the better products you will build and more risks you can take now so that you don't end up being in a situation where the product has demand, but you can't just build and ship
1: them. I hope that helps. Oh, yeah, absolutely helps. And um, I got a backlog of questions, one of them is tied to risks. And I think, uh, so two questions, we'll start with this first one for you, which is, what's the biggest mistake you've made in utilizing predictive analytics? So you talk about the risk and trying to get it right. Give us the juicy story. Gamma. <laughs> <laughs> the audience wants to know. What's an example of it going wrong? You, you might have learned something from it, so there's a the happy ending, of course. But Of course. Uh, so
3: we have so many examples of like, not happy endings, and I don't think many companies will talk about it, and many product managers will talk about it. But as being an emerging technology, we knew that 70% of the projects or explorations will fail. And we will learn from that and then we will build something that is right. One of the products that, that I don't think I would want to mention here was uh, launched five times with five different names for great raves and reviews, but the actual product was never shipped. Just because when, you went to, when we went to build it, we just could not make the math work. The components would not work. Uh, the, the scenario where we would generate operating income for uh, the required amount of time to actually go into production would was not met. So even though the market wanted it, they were willing to pay, we could figure out what exactly would be a good price point to sell. That looked very lucrative at the time, but over the life of a product, it would not make sense. And like, in spite of going through six or seven iterations, we just did not make it. Now, in hindsight, I can say we did not make it, but when, when we were building it, at every single iteration, we knew that we would do better. We knew that we would make it happen this time, and we
1: didn't. I hope that helps. Oh, wow! Well, I mean, it's not just for me. It was juicy. It was good, self opera worthy. <laughs> and then uh, Varun, what about you? I mean, if this was a contest of the possibly worst outcome, I, I would love to see what, uh, what you might want to add to the mix.
2: Oh yeah, I mean I've had to roll back an entire product release <laughs>
1: if that helps. But that is you because, and Ash are in pain right now. This is I feel so bad, yet the audience is enjoying it, you should know.
2: So, no, that's completely fine. I think as a PM you should be ready for failures, but that's always a given I think and like Ash rightly pointed out, nobody really talks about it because nobody really wants to quantify failures, right? It's it's not a good metric at the end of the day, but no. Uh, so, yeah, and uh I was using all these fancy predictive analytics and like frameworks to come up with decision-making for one of the B2B products uh, that I was working on. And I decided to launch it for one of the global regions and realized that from the time all the predictive analytics work was done till the launch happened, the market landscape had already changed. The customer expectations had already changed and we didn't predict or take into Account these scenarios correctly, because I was complacent, to be honest with you. And uh, iterations and iterative testing and continuous improvements should have been a part of that process. And on launching, we realized that customers just wanted X instead of A. That's how you know they were not signing up for new subscriptions, or they were not, or there was lesser customer engagement than expected. And of course, there were a lot of incidents or support requests from customers asking that they wanted X, but we delivered, let's say, A or Y to them. And then I had to roll it back and go through a quick cycle again and iteration and re-release it and ensure that the customer expectations were taken into account as well as the predictions pointed us in the right direction. So that was one of uh, – I think one of that was a great learning lessons to, from a perspective where you shouldn't hurry and you shouldn't really – go all in, but should be cognizant of the fact that there are risks and you should also always have some contingency or mitigation strategies ready, of course, which I did and uh, which kind of led to the rollback. But I was able to work through it and thankfully was able to re-release it and help with churn reduction and
1: stuff like that. And there's the happy ending. Yay. (laughs) Well, you and Ash showing what transparency looks like for product managers is inspiring more people to want to take on this role. So thank you for that. We do have another question that's coming in from a direct message. Somebody that's actually a, well, DAWG from the community of University of Washington, they have the following question. And Jeff, forgive the question being in uh, not directly tied to predictive analytics, but we are dedicated on the show every week to trying to help as many PMs as we can. So refusing a question just goes against our ethos. So Varun and Ash, if we could try to take our scenarios and our predictive analytics and product prioritization and put it aside and get our beginner's mindset back. This question goes back to your very beginnings, the roots, when you were still holding the proverbial milk bottle of product management. The question is as follows. I don't have any experience. I want to learn about PM and develop and Get the skills necessary. I'm wondering if the speakers have any advice on how to learn about product skills, what to consider from the customer's perspective. What's the most helpful? I mean, early in the career, I'm listening to webinars, finding classes. What was that turning point for you, Varun and Ash, that you thought was well understated as a, as a resource was the thing that really turned you on and really got you in the right direction? Challenge for simple advice, I might add. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I can go first. Uh, And I'll keep it very simple and short. It is speaking to your peers as well as people in the field. And I think the IPMA is a great resource, right? Where a lot of mentors come in and talk to you about your resumes or help you prepare for interviews and things like that. I think that's what really helped me. Back at Northwestern, I was fortunate enough to be mentored by some senior students as well as industry experts who'd come in and who would share their thoughts on failures and how they improved in their journeys and experiences. So really summarizing it, just speaking to a lot of people who were in a similar process or who had already taken that route of going into uh, product management. That really helped me set the stage and uh, get well worse with like what's going on and what to expect and how to navigate certain challenges. Awesome. What about you, Ash? I agree
3: with what Varun just said. The first source is look at folks. You don't have to invent reinvent the wheel. Somebody's already done it. And more people are more than happy to share. So pick that as one. There were two other things that I kind of like look at it. And so the thing that I do is, and they're very distinct pieces. One is to be a good product manager. You have to be a good expert in the domain in which you're building products. And that is a long-term strategic decision that you need to to make and, and go and work on it. And it is just finding all and any sort of information and just trying to be an expert in that field. You should know the different roles, the different people, what they do, what function they serve, what value they add and all of that stuff. So just building a good market map just for your understanding is is critical and you it, it never ends. It You build it, then it evolves. And then it changes and then there's disruption. So just keeping track of that for yourself is super critical. You have to do it for yourself and you have to take all of the company business, current product market scenarios out of it while you honestly represent what the market is for your own benefit. The second piece is the domain of product management and the best place that I found over my career is to go to hackathons and play the role of a product. Somebody will come with an idea, analyze it in a few minutes to build a product and see if it works. And it is a competitive thing. You learn from each other and you kind of like have an ad of half a day, one day to build a product. And if you are successful, it does a great amount of service to you in in learning and the second piece is you get confidence, which is a critical ingredient to succeed as a product manager.
2: Oh, I completely agree, Ash. Hackathons are, of course, a great resource. So if anybody wants to learn like the raw skills of building something from zero to one and from scratch, it's a great environment to also interact with you know, your peers or anybody else from other streams like engineering and design. And that kind of helps you fit into that product prior as well and gain that experience of engaging and interacting with these different people that you will be
1: working with on a day-to-day basis so yeah thanks ash that's super helpful okay well while you two have been helpful we have brought on one final question for the day and like every show that we have we are voting for the side of speed so the way this is going to work is the person asking the question has less than 30 seconds to ask the question and then you two have 30 seconds to respond. Why do we do this? Because, well, why not? Make the world spicier, we say. So with that in mind, and hopefully I get your name correctly, Rishikesh, this is your chance. You have asked a question previously. The stage is now yours to follow up with another question. Oh yeah. But I have a question for Varun. Like, how often does the marketplace change? Like what is the what is the
0: trend in the current market, marketplace change? Speed and effectiveness. Great question. Varun, what do you got for us? The market always changes and changes continuously.
2: And a good example is the recent emphasis on generative AI and how that is being integrated and put into practice. So two things real quick. Market changes continuously. Secondly, as a PM, you're expected to be agile, deal with ambiguity, be nimble and flexible, while also staying on top of trends. So having that subject matter expertise and doing as much research as possible or meeting and speaking with as many people as possible and getting any practical hands-on experience is definitely necessary to address the changing market landscape.
3: Thanks for that.
2: All right, Ash, do you want to throw in a little bit here?
3: That was- yeah, if they are very slow moving of what they do, I mean, you do not want your data to be moved or uh, lost in any process that is happening in the scene for storage. And insurance is the same way. It, Works on very, very long cycles uh, because you can have losses uh, in a few years and not have losses for so many years. Like, uh, like in recent cases, like earthquakes or floods or fires are devastating states and almost killing insurance industries. Now, that's a bad thing in the last two or three years, but hopefully we'll have four or five years of not so many losses, which will make sure that that market stays viable. So uh, in my case, unfortunately, things don't change as fast.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rishikesh, thank you again for the great question. And as for Ash and Varun, uh, your definition of 30 seconds is not the definition of our 30 seconds. Uh, That is my only roast of you for the day. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair.
0: Back to you. Ending <laughs> with an insult, red, after all the joy and positivity you brought to this. Or maybe it wasn't an insult. Maybe it was just a point of difference. And maybe they were faster than 30 seconds. It was a
1: data point, a it data was a point. scenario definition.
0: Yeah. We're going to cluster analysis that, put it in the top left quadrant, and get to concluding thoughts. So we have uh, two minutes total. So split them up however you want. But what would you like to leave the audience with at the end of this conversation? Any bullet points or uh, short takeaways you want to leave with everybody? We'll start with you, Varun.
2: Okay, perfect. Now, uh, so real quick, keep in mind that as a PM or anybody who's working in a product team, you do have to be very flexible and adaptable to what's going on. Uh, Secondly, when you are making product prioritization decisions, of course, use the frameworks, use the concepts, use the tools, especially those that are industry standards and very popular. But keep in mind that you have to have a holistic approach from a predictive analytics standpoint, from a historical analysis standpoint. And at the end of the day, you need to take into account what your customers want and work backwards. And third, and the last thing is, you know, keep up to date, keep learning, be engaged with the community, attend hackathons, like Ash said, and try and get that hands-on experience to ensure that you kind of sharpen your skill sets and build more expertise in a particular industry domain, or if you want to be a generic functional PM, then you build those standardized skill sets as well. Thanks again, Professor Shulman and Red for having us on the podcast.
0: All right. Thank you, Varun, for being here. And Ash, what are your bullet point takeaways you want to leave the audience with?
2: I would say for prioritization,
3: when you're using data, you may have to make sure that you keep the strategic prioritization separate from tactical prioritization and do not mix the two. I've gotten myself into loops over a period of time. Uh, one way or the other, there are so many pitfalls in trying to combine the two. So they do require two different mindsets. They do require a different depths. So just keep them separate. And like we test upon a whole lot of things, data is important. Knowing the sources of information, knowing your models, knowing the uses and making sure that you Do not let them creep into other areas for which they are not suited just because they are available. I think will be a very, very good indicator of your success. And I wish you all guys a successful career. And I hope you guys build some fantastic products that you are very proud of and help us all in the long run.
0: All right. Thank you both. Appreciate you being here today. And my concluding thoughts are, next week we're going to be talking about uh, transitioning into product management from a non-traditional background. So that's uh, of key interest to our Aspiring product managers, but we're also cooking up a new initiative here at the Product Management Center at the University of Washington. Our mission is to empower product managers from all over to develop innovations that are inclusive to diverse audiences and that drive success for their business. And so we want to help all of you product managers out there with a brand new offering. So if you're interested in advancing your product management career, and you're already a product manager, and you want to be interviewed You know, as we collect some data and predictive analytics as to how to shape this new program we're thinking about, DM me, reach out to me, email me, but uh, we would love to talk to you as we work on a new initiative to help current product managers uh, find community, find the cutting-edge knowledge, and, and get ahead in your career. So let us know. Otherwise, stay tuned for exciting announcements uh, after we conduct our an- interviews and predictive analytics and make our prioritization decisions. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great day.